0: Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I know that we are... These are weird times um, for us, and it seems like um, I don't want to frighten anybody here and keep you away from coming to church, but um, we seem to have a number of people here who in our congregation who have tested positive, whatever that means, because you can have a false positive, but at any rate... um, Don't talk to anybody, don't fellowship with anybody, Um, don't be nice to anybody, just glad you're here, put your money in the offering, go to your car. I want to take just a moment before we look at Scripture. Um, Last Monday, Carl Reimer went to heaven. And since there will be uh, no service until a later date, and we don't know when that is, uh, we cannot let someone like Carl uh, let his passing go kind of unnoticed. And so um, just a few brief things. I think Carl was one of the first people that I met when I came to town, uh, let's, let's see, over 21 years ago. Um, Carl's been a dear man of God for decades and decades. Um, good insight, good advice, good spiritual wisdom. Um, he and Martha uh, were married 68 years. He was born in Oshoto. Um, and he taught here in Campbell County uh, for over 36 years, taught science. I think it was 1968, 1970, somewhere in there. He was Wyoming uh, Teacher of the Year. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, Carl had a lot of scholarly grants and study opportunities um, that I didn't, I knew of a few of them, but um, he, he had a degree in agriculture from Iowa State, and then he ended up going to Arizona, University of Arizona, for um, a master's in biology. And then he had, because of his expertise, he had a lot of Uh, study grants and spent time um, in some prestigious science um, courses, went to Cornell University, uh, Oregon State, which that doesn't mean too much um, since I grew up in Eugene, which was about 40 miles from Corvallis. Carl and I used to talk about that. We called it, it was just Cal College they called it, uh, it was the agricultural school. it was Oregon State was sort of down here, and the University of Oregon was up here. And anyway, um, I don't know if he ever really bought that, but he also had a study grant at University of Southern California, um, uh, w- University of Washington. And so in our midst was someone who scholastically um, was outstanding and but never. Pretentious, never acted like that. Mostly, Carl knew the Lord. He knew God. He knew God's Word. He prayed, prayed much. We have, we look at it as a loss, and I feel that we've lost um, a saint from our midst. Um, But we sure know where he is. And it turned out that just a, a few hours, maybe, in fact, it was less, I, I suppose, seven, six, seven hours in the evening. Um, I and Martha and Judy and Jill were there, read a lot of scripture from the 15th chapter of Romans about the resurrection and that the last enemy that will be. Um, crushed under God's foot is death and but looking to the resurrection and life eternal felt like God's presence was there and I would just quote what John Wesley said about the early Methodists Um, he said our people die well Meaning, Uh, they die in victory. They know where they're going. Their families know where they're going. There is nothing like that. There's no assurance like that kind of assurance. We know this morning where Carl is. So, I don't know, of course, we'll let you know when there will be a service. Um, And... We will have an opportunity then, I think, to to share about Carl. But since it'll be a while, could be some months even, um, I, I wanted to say a few words here this morning. Now today is what we call the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is um, historically Christian, but it's not something that is directed in Scripture, but it's the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and it's traditionally the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And so for these today and the next three Sundays, I want us to focus on Um, A passage of scripture that covers several chapters in the book of Isaiah. Now I want to read today a little more scripture than we will um, subsequent Sundays. The scriptures I want to read today are what we'll look at for the next Sundays of Advent and I want to just tell you as we start out I'll have you follow uh, with me if you can that these scriptures are maybe a bit hard to follow and might appear a bit confusing, but what they really are are some of the greatest prophecies of the coming of the Messiah by one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and they are the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah are fitted into current events that were going on in Israel in 740 approximately BC. Now, that introduces some names of kings and some things that seem kind of confusing and we can't pronounce their names and so forth. But what it tells us in a bigger sense is God is always using illustrations to get truth to us here's what i want to say i want to encourage everybody today want to be kind to you we're not very bright okay at least you aren't Um, there's a couple of us here that are you know we're dumb we're dull maybe that's a better term we're sheep that's not a compliment god calls us sheep So we have to hear things over and over and over. God is very repetitious, not boring, but repetitious. And he always sets his truth in a context of real life events and life experiences so that we can understand it better. Jesus is... Colossians simply says, in Jesus are all the riches of wisdom. What kind of a preacher was he? Was Jesus hard to follow? Was he someone who you know, was using PhD, $3 words? No. A sower went out to sow. A woman lost a coin. She had 10 and she lost one, so she swept the house and looked for it. A shepherd had a hundred sheep, and one of them got lost, so he went out to look for it. That's how God has always taught us, because we are darkened in our understanding, especially of spiritual things, by sin. So God's whole effort is always very simple, very plain, easy to understand, Which, by the way, removes excuses from us. No one will ever be able to say, I'll tell you what, I just couldn't understand God, I just can't. Yeah, you do. Don't do that. (laughs) I just don't get it. Yeah, you get it. You just still want to do that. And so you do. That's us. So, the scripture here, if we read some of them, I'm going to skip... A fair amount, but we'll start in Isaiah seven. There will be two well known prophecies of the Messiah coming that we will encounter here. But we'll begin verse seven or, or chapter seven, verse one, and the setting here is the prophecy, the ministry of Isaiah. He ministered during the the um, kingdoms of were introduced here to a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz was no good. He was a lousy king of Judah. He had a wonderful son, Hezekiah, who became king, led a great revival and returned to God of the Israelites. Hezekiah had a son, who followed him, his name was Manasseh. He was the worst king Judah ever had. He was even worse than his grandfather Ahaz. In the midst of all of this, ups and downs, and great um, falling away from God, Isaiah ministered. He preached. He was God's messenger to Israel. In the good days of Hezekiah, the bad days of Ahaz, the worst days of Manasseh, and strong Jewish tradition tells us that now as an aging prophet under Manasseh, Isaiah had preached to Manasseh's dad, encouraged him, prayed with him, prayed for him, Hezekiah. He had rebuked Hezekiah's dad, Manasseh's grandfather Ahaz, and brought prophecies of judgment against him. Now as an aging prophet, one who had a tremendous mark on the nation of Israel and the, the greatest prophetic utterances about Christ in all the Old Testament are through Isaiah. This towering man of God, as far as we know, was Executed, martyred by Manasseh. And Manasseh, according to tradition, um, had Isaiah cut in half with a huge saw. That, I think, is referred to in Hebrews 11 the hero, the hall of fame of the saints where it says some were killed with the sword some were you know fed to the beast and some it says were sawn asunder i imagine that's referring to isaiah now so this prophecy of isaiah begin beginning here in chapter 7 has to do with Here's the context. Current and looming judgment on Israel by evil nations around them that God raised them up to flatten Israel, to teach them a lesson, to judge them, to hopefully cause them to come back to him from whom they had strayed. So that we'll hear about the king of Assyria and the king of Syria, and the king of Israel. If you if you're, need a little background, Israel was at one time one kingdom under Saul, and under David, and under Solomon. But then there was a civil war, really, a split. And the northern ten tribes of Israel were called Israel, the kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes, Judah, Simeon, then a smattering of some others, were called the kingdom of Judah. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, in Chronicles, in Kings, prophecies of Isaiah, don't get confused between the king of Israel and the king of Judah. Those are now two different kingdoms. Now, having said all that, I don't even know if I need to say all of it, but <clears throat> chapter 7 of Isaiah, 1 through 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, Syria borders to this day, Israel on the north. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, also north of Judah, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is one of the main uh, tribes of Israel, talking about Israel. Syria is in league with the kingdom of Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, that is his son, if you're looking for names for kids, there's a good one. Go meet them at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria... With Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol the grave or high as heaven. But Ahaz, remember, he's a rat. He, didn't care. he doesn't even care if he gets a sign from God. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. He's not being reverent here. He's being impudent. And he said, that's Isaiah, and he, Isaiah, said, "Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you will weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have, has, as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah. That was that civil war that split the kingdoms. The king of Assyria. Summarizing it, you think the king of Syria and the king of Israel are terrifying you? I'm going to bring the king of Assyria. King of Assyria, capital in Nineveh, steamrolled all of these countries and kingdoms around him so God is promising because you rejected me at the fear of two sub kings I'm going to bring Sennacherib I'm going to bring different names of different kings from Assyria a massive kingdom and they'll steamroll you you think you're scared now wait till you see what i'm going to do to you because you've rejected me now 8 chapter 8 verse 5 <clears throat> the lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of shiloh or shiloh which is means peace that flowed gently and they rejoice over reason and the son of remaliah therefore behold the lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river that's the euphrates massive euphrates river upon which nineveh the capital city of assyria sat and so you're being overflowed by a creek i'm going to bring the river euphrates in other words assyria so he's the theme is still the same. The waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels, go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries." Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will, not come, it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, let's stop here for a second. I'm still giving the context for the prophecy that is to come. Notice he says, he reminds them, I'm going to bring the king of Assyria on you who will terrify you. And then in verse 11, when he says, don't think like these people think. Don't call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. What is he saying here? These people, this can happen, and I think in some ways is happening to us today in this pandemic and everything we've got going on. Isaiah said, the people in this sense have so forgotten God, so forgotten that I am still the sovereign king of the universe, that they are crediting the threats to their nation, Israel, and all that is going on, it's a conspiracy, meaning men have cooked this up. It's the nations are behind all this. God is basically saying, in a proper way, when you credit earthly things to earthly conspiracies, you're forgetting that I still run everything. It may be a conspiracy to me because I can't see it, but God sees it. And He says, basically, what's He saying here? I'm sovereign. Nothing happens unless I let it happen. Nothing. So even if we say people are concocting some scheme, they're going to attack us, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, they're going to throw the election, God says, no, don't credit things to earthly people that they can't really pull off. Nothing happens unless I say so. Now that is a sanctuary. Notice he says here two things. He said, I will be a sanctuary and a stone of stumbling. Now that's contradictory. It means I am to people what their attitude is toward me. To those of us who walk with God, We can rest in the fact that whatever we can't understand and God doesn't stoop to tell us very often right on the spot what He's doing. So Israel in their darkened state couldn't figure out what's God doing here. Yet what is this passage? He's telling them. (laughs) He's telling them you don't know now but you wait. I will make clear You just trust me because nothing will happen to you that I don't know about. It had to get by me first. And I either decide it will happen or it won't happen. Even in this passage, you have kings saying, We're going to come up and we're going to do this and we're going to attack Jerusalem. We're going to. He said, Eh, it won't happen. Why? Because I say so. That doesn't remove sometimes the deep pondering wonderment bewilderment question lord i'd have done it this way i wouldn't have done that there's a certain amount of that that god's fine with as long as it as it is that whole questioning is completely marinated soaked in reverence for God we start getting smart with God angry with you know and and just snotty with him (laughs) I don't like why'd you do that that's not healthy (laughs) for the long term we have to resist that temptation and not think like everyone else thinks I tell you And I'm not listen. I've spent as much, or or maybe more, time agonizing over things in our country. But my only refuge is, my sanctuary is to retreat into when my heart's heavy and you're laying awake in the middle of the night, is to retreat back into. But God is still on the throne. And people can boast and threaten and do all kinds of things, but God is still utterly in control. He's such a said this a few weeks ago, you work for anybody that you think's a micromanager? Let me tell you something. There is no micromanager in the universe like God. He's also a macromanager. He made all this, Gives us all life. Causes the sun to rise. He upholds all things by the word of His power. But a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground that he doesn't know about it. Now that's micromanaging. So he loses my file. (laughs) You know, somehow it gets deleted and he forgot about me. He's lost my contact information. We get called at the church often. You know, I can't find so-and-so's number. Have you got it? God never has to call anybody to get, I, I, I don't have your, I'd like to text you, but I haven't got your number. God doesn't do that. He knows a sparrow. A sparrow. Seven billion people in this world. He says, I know the hairs of all your heads. I know your thoughts before you think them, your words before you say them. I know, he says, you're sitting down, you're rising up, you're going outside, you're coming in, you're working, you're planting, you're harvesting. I know it all. So he says, don't credit what's coming on you in judgment and trouble. Don't credit it to a conspiracy by men. They aren't big enough to pull that off. I'm doing it. That then is to those who fear God, a sanctuary. God's got it. I don't understand what he's doing, but the last time I checked, it's been a real long stretch since he's made a mistake. But it's a, he is a stone of stumbling to those Who try to live their lives without Him and explain this world without Him. What does that stone of stumbling mean? I think simply it means this when I try to put God to the side and don't consider Him and His laws and His will for us, and I'm going to chart my own course and I'm going to do things the way I know best we're always tripping over something we always stumble jesus said when you walk in the dark you don't even know what you stumble over that's what he means here that god and his word is either a sanctuary to those of us who fear him but he's also he's also a hurdle a stumbling block you trip over Him because everywhere you turn to try to do something without Him, there he is. And you end, up, you end up stubbing your toe, falling headlong, doing a face plant in life. And what do we do? Almost always, we get back up on our feet and we continue to chart our own cause, chart our own way, think our own thoughts, plan our own agendas, and we face plant again and then we get up and we dust ourselves off and we determine that we did this, we should have done a bit different here, but we never stop and say, maybe I ought to take orders from somebody else. Maybe I'm not capable of charting my own course. Now, I don't know where I'm at. Um, <clears throat> 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will. This is Isaiah. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. The King James says, to the wizards who mutter and peep. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. In other words, seek God's word. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, they have no light in them. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they'll be enraged to speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That last phrase, gloom of anguish, really it's anguishing darkness. He's describing here. Descending, the longer we walk without God, reject His will, His teaching, His prompting, the darker it gets, the more anguished it gets, the worse it gets. We hope and plan and wish for it to get better, but always gets worse. Now we come to nine. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, he, that's God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, that's northern Israel. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We'll stop, therefore a moment. That second verse is always, is another great messianic prophecy. The people who sat in darkness, so dark they couldn't even move, have seen a great light. That's what Christmas is about. That's what we look for in Advent. We, we look toward the arrival of light Because we're in darkness. When I'm in darkness, I have to have an outside rescuer. Someone has to come to me. I can't do it myself. So God sent His Son. Even though we're in darkness due to our rejection of God, that God still pierces the darkness with light. Now He's using here, still the illustration of physical darkness and physical threat from evil nations who want to wipe us out. It's not just military that God's worried about. It isn't the survival of a culture that God's all worried about. This is a spiritual illustration of spiritual darkness. That You know what spiritual darkness really is? And I don't mean to be... uh, crazy here the darkness of the human heart the questioning the anguish the just chaos of the deep soul the heavily laden burdened troubled darkened heart is a little bit of hell it's a foretaste of hell to go to hell with in the same way on the other side the peace and joy and presence of God in my soul in spite of all the difficulties we face in this world but those those times when we read our bibles and we pray having our daily time with God doesn't happen all the time but our hearts are just strangely warmed And we feel God's presence. And we know He's real. Our hearts are stirred. They're secured. They're strengthened. Our minds are enlightened with some word of Scripture. That's a little bit of heaven to go to heaven with. So those who love God have a foretaste. God gives us a foretaste of heaven. And saying to us, you keep going you keep steady you hold steady this is but a foretaste of heaven and truly he's saying the same thing with darkness guilt shame heaviness just the the nothingness of a life of darkness in my soul and lack of assurance of my name being written in heaven, that's a little bit, it's a foretaste of hell. And God is trying to give us some insight, a brief glimpse, a little taste of the awfulness of no God. When we say no to God here, the truth of the matter is, Yes, we keep him at arm's length, but we can't get rid of him. You can't get rid of God until you get to hell. And that's what hell is. Not not a molecule of goodness, decency, faithfulness, righteousness. God. Hell is finally giving us All of us who would say, no, I don't want God, without recognizing that He's blessing us all the time and helping us, encouraging and calling and pleading with us to come to Him, He'll finally give us our choice. Okay, that's what you want. No God. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's not a verse, really, that we can use about atheists, because it doesn't mean that. It's literally the fool says in his heart, "No God for me. I don't, I don't want God's word. I don't want his will. It's really not atheism. It is rejection of God's claim over my life, my heart, my world. So God, notice how also we see something about the, there's paradox God is a paradox in this sense. We expect, and the Jews expected, a towering king to be their messiah, a military mighty warrior, statesman who would once again elevate the nation of Israel and conquer all of these nations around them that were threats to them that's what they were looking for when jesus came meek mild riding on the colt of a donkey that's why they said what's this notice this who are they up against who are they fearful of at that time the greatest kingdom on earth We call ourselves, as America, we're a superpower. Okay? Assyria was a super kingdom. And they were gobbling up every nation around them, including threatening Israel and Jerusalem. And so they expected, well, we've got to have a king bigger than him, tougher than him, stronger than him. We've got to have all kinds of military might and we've got to have financial power. So, so what what does nine two say? There won't be gloom. You'll see a great light. Then the people who walked in darkness have seen this light. We go down further to eight. I'm sorry, six. What does God do in all this threat? The Russians are coming, or whoever. Chinese are coming. That's their thinking. That's what they're up against. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Boy, that's a real help, isn't it? Do you understand how this looks through Isaiah's words to those people who have not factored God in and they're saying yeah but he's got 250,000 man army they've got this they've got that I'll tell you what I'm going to do God says a little baby's going to be born that'll fix them see how that is just what's this God does that all the time God is always using, he said, foolish things to confound the wise. Weak things to triumph over the strong. God's always doing that. He absolutely refuses. He won't dance to our fiddling. Do you know that? He won't march to our drum. We want the spectacular, the sensational. He, he starts out with a mustard seed little things silent things but notice here the government shall be upon his shoulder his name shall be called wonderful counselor wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end you're afraid, you're afraid of the kingdoms of this world, you're afraid of the darkness, I'm going to found a kingdom by bringing a baby into the world born of a virgin. All the names let us know this is God, yet he has a humble human birth. That's what Christmas is all about. The seemingly meaningless, helpless. A uh, Helpless. Think about this. Then I, we've got to quit. Jesus, it says, from the beginning, all things were made by him and without him was nothing made that was made. Jesus made everything we see. Jesus upholds it, it says, by the word of his power. That Jesus, eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, comes into this world, a helpless infant, in a stable to poverty-stricken parents who have no pull, no class, no position, no nothing. He comes in the smallest, the most helpless, the littlest, and what did he do until he started his ministry? Here's the one he said. Let there be light. And the stars, which we haven't found the end of them yet, flung out. And what did he do even in his pre-ministry life? Sat and whittled on a chair leg. He was a carpenter. He built furniture. Built furniture. And so somebody come and say, I, you know, I need a dining room table or whatever. And whatever crude kind of instruments they had, he'd put on a lathe and make a chair leg and whittle a little bit on it and sand on it and paint it or whatever. The same God that just said, spoke into being, sat on a chair whittling on a chair leg. Nothing But conqueror, that's really what Advent's all about. Well, I have to quit. I want to we'll stay on this passage through the next three Sundays. There's a lot here, I think, um, to instruct us and to help us. So let's bow our heads. <coughs> we will close without music this morning, Dan, if you would come and dismiss us.